it is drizzling just a tiny bit. And I just left my rectory here. The church that's dedicated to St. Joseph's is on my right. And you can hear the cars driving through the puddles of water and the occasional bike passing by as well. And I'm on foot heading for the center of Amersfoort, which is about, uh, I'd say, a 30-minute walk, a little bit more. And I'm recording this on a Saturday in the early afternoon. This morning I slept in quite a bit. It did me a lot of good after a very intense week. And now I'm heading for uh, one of the outdoor stores. Not that the store is outdoor, but they sell outdoor stuff. Because I need to get uh, two, actually four pairs of socks. In addition to the ones that I already own. And all that in preparation for the big four-day walking event that I'm going to participate in next week. I'll be leaving for Nijmegen, which is a city in the uh, eastern part of the country where the event takes place on Monday. And I'll pick up my, uh, my credentials, my uh, pass, and you, of course you need to identify yourself along the, the itinerary and they scan it in to make sure that you walk the given distance. I'll do that on Monday and uh, then I think I start around 5 o'clock in the morning on the first day and walk 40 kilometers and that's going to repeat itself on Wednesday, ter- Thursday and Friday is the final day and I will have walked 160 kilometers in four days. I'm not going to walk alone. There are uh, about 40,000, 45,000 participants. This is one of the biggest walking events in the world. And I'm staying uh, with a couple of friends that are also going to walk at a house of, uh, of the Jesuits. And so that's going to be uh, a, a huge help. A lot of, you, you can imagine that a relatively small city is going to be inundated with uh, those 45,000 participants and their family in some cases. So it's very hard to find rooms there. Uh, And I stayed at the uh, Jesuit house last year as well. If only for one night, because I was going to film uh, a couple of interviews with with some Catholic people that I knew, among which uh, uh, an auxiliary bishop and a friend of mine who walks uh, this, uh, this walk, I think for the, I don't know, the 30th or 40th time. Yeah, but now I'm, I'm, I'm able to stay there for the, the entire duration of the event. And sleeping, as you can imagine, is pretty vital when it comes to keeping your energy, saving your energy uh, during such a, an excruciating event. I have no idea how, how things will go. I, I did train quite a bit, especially long-distance training, walks of 40, 50 kilometers, on a, on a reasonably regular uh, schedule. It's only the last month and a half that I had to tone it down because of the uh, uh, situation of my father. 
And so the last few weeks, I've not walked as much as I wanted to. But I've never really walked for four days in a row, and especially not those long-distance walks. So this may still <laughs> bite me <laughs> and uh, cause problems. I, don't, I have no idea how my body will react to four days of walking. On the other hand, my experience with uh, marathon running and training schedules for that is as long as you've you know done the a sufficient amount of kilometers your body actually kind of retains that strength the muscles in my legs and the stamina are not going to disappear in the span of a couple of weeks and so it's always a bit scary when you you're preparing for a marathon and you have to scale back actually the amount of kilometers towards the uh the starting date and then the final few weeks you hardly run at all and it's all to conserve energy for that you know one big push during the marathon day this however is a, is a totally different discipline walking does different things to your body and to your mind it's also endurance you know psychological endurance and i'm also not sure how um how this is going to how my plan is going to work out to film a number of interviews while I'm walking. So every day I'm going to walk, not every day, just two days of those four days, I'm going to walk with the people that I'm going to interview about their charitable cause. Um, I'm going to walk for charity myself as well. So I've let myself be sponsored for, uh, for actually for a charity that um, the bishops support and that they will advertise um, a little bit more during the time of Advent and that has to do with the television schedule as you know I'm working ahead of time this year and I, um, I was thinking about how to connect this walking event to the, the, well, the rest of the, of the year and what time would be the best what, what month would be the best month to, um, uh, to put this on the screen and uh, and I ultimately chose to put it uh, on on TV in the month of November, towards the end of November. And I will connect. That's why my charity is uh, is connected to this Advent project. But uh, so and and that will the project uh, supports um, four projects in different countries, uh, South America and a few in Africa, I think, for uh, support. Um, pregnant mothers and their uh, unborn or born children and in all those four countries uh, the situation is dire and a lot of mothers and children die uh, before or after giving birth because of uh, sanitary conditions or the lack of access to medication and uh, and I, I, I think I, that's a very important goal for me to, to support it is supporting life it's supporting the life givers the bearers of life the mothers and even though my own contribution is just a, a a drop of water in the ocean it still matters and i've learned over the years that even small contributions can change lives can change um, not perhaps the the great course of history but it can change the history of the personal history of families and of children so um, most of my interviews in the next week will be about walking for charity and uh, the other two people that I'm going to interview walk for a charity that they have a 
a history with that they are really that they care for a lot. I have some leftover material from last year where I interviewed a couple that walked for charity um, for uh, an orphanage in uh, Vietnam. And so I've, I think I've got a lot of, you know, a, a good uh, direction for, overall direction for that, for that show. But, of course, filming while walking is challenging because not only do I have to interview people, which is tricky when everyone is walking, but you also want to have the shots of people walking. And so last year, I think I did twice the distance because I was running back and forth between my interviewees and, uh, and, and, and the, let's say, the locations around the walking itinerary to make nice shots and everything. And it sometimes happens that you lose the person that you were interviewing and they have to run around trying to find them again. Hopefully technology will uh, help me a little bit this year. Because there's an app uh, on which that tracks your uh, GPS uh, location, and it will send it to people that have indicated that they want to follow you. Of course, you have to give them permission. It's a bit like, um, well, there are multiple other apps that kind of do the same. But it's very cool to see that they've implemented this technology now for for a walking event like this. So even if I lose track of uh, of certain people, I'll probably be able to find them thanks to that app so that's all coming next week I'm looking forward to it I'm looking forward to doing something totally different and this leads into my vacation the week after so I'll be back for the weekend as usual because uh, as a parish priest I have my duties in the parishes and uh, I try to be in my parish as much as I can so even for my vacation um I I leave the Monday after the weekend, so that next weekend I can still do celebrate the masses, and then I'll leave for Ireland for about what is it, ten, twelve days. I'll skip one weekend in a parish, and then I'll be back for the weekend after. And uh, that will probably also be a vacation with similar weather as I have currently. It's overcast. It's raining a little bit, but at least it's not. Is not warm, it's not hot, and uh, that makes me much more active. So, really eager to explore the uh, Irish countryside again, and hopefully, it'll be a very hobbity uh, vacation. Uh, so, last week, or actually this week, because I, I'm recording this on Saturday, we uh, put a lot of effort into the start of the renovation of the offices and the studios. As you know, it's, it's been my, my, my dream to create a company and a platform that can produce uh, video productions mostly and also the occasional podcast, um, uh, it, it, but on a much bigger scale than I've ever been able to do in, in the, let's say, the 15 years that precede this time and our team has been growing the number of shows that we produce every year has been growing exponentially I mean I can hardly believe that this year even for the next couple of months I'll probably produce 15 16 episodes that is like three times the amount of episodes that I normally produce in an entire year add to that um, about what is it six or 
yeah, around six episodes that I've produced in the in the previous months. That's more than 20 TV episodes. That is tremendous. <laughs> I really uh, I never thought that I'd be able to scale up the the the, the production this quickly. And then, of course, we have this uh, launch, this pr- very careful, uh, small launch of this Dutch Catholic channel. Um, but I've, I'm, I'm applying everything I've learned over the past 15 years. Also, the things that I've learned about myself and the mistakes that I've made over all these years. And there are plenty of those. And I think that has helped me to, to make this startup work. Because we're never... Um, doing more than we budget for and budget is not just financial budget but also time and resources budget so much much more careful uh, than ever before when it comes to announcing what we're going to do promising what we're going to do and even then I still make mistakes and I still want to do much more than I can actually do because we're still working with a relatively small team But, nevertheless, we've been really surpassing our own expectations about what we would be able to accomplish this very first year. And we're only halfway through the year. The most exciting new development is uh, that we were working with a professional to uh, think about our entire marketing strategy. I think I've already mentioned that in earlier episodes. And what I really learned about this, um, these three meetings that we've had so far is that you have to look at the people that you, that you um, cater to with your programming as people, as, almost as a fellowship that goes with you on a journey. And you have to uh, plot that journey ahead of time. And for me, it's always been, I've been focusing very much on the first encounter I wanted to meet people where they are in the world that they know and love, speaking their language, be it Star Wars or Lego or faith. And then you, you start an adventure and, and it's all about experiencing this, com- this community. And that is true for us, for me as a program maker, and for the people that, for instance, are listening to what I'm recording right now. We are on a journey. But the rest of the journey was kind of vague and just, well, we'll see where we go and usually didn't really have much of a plan other than we'll just do what we do. (laughs) But a lot of those journeys didn't have an end point or a destination, which makes them susceptible to um, vagabondery. Is that a word? (laughs) You just, you just do whatever, whatever you, you you can do at that moment but you don't have a plan you don't really budget for that journey and you certainly don't know exactly where that should lead other than you know we're, we're uh, on our way however in, in marketing it's important to help people make that journey and also to make them arrive at a certain destination and that can be um, a non-physical destination it can be uh, for instance I want people to learn how to better educate their children. It's one of the sub-goals that we have for the Catholic channels, helping parents to, to uh, transmit their own faith to their children. And we, we're working with a generation of 
of younger people in their 30s that haven't had the benefit of being brought up with the faith. A lot of them have discovered faith later on or, um, or are new to the faith. So how do you pass that along to children in a world that has also dramatically changed from the time that I was young in a sense that almost no one believes, almost no one is, is part of that church community. So how do you help them to, uh, well, to, to, to do what is an integral part of faith and that is passing it on and it's communicating what you've discovered yourself. And that, so that could be one of the goals. You know, we need to give parents... So, and, and once you know what the, the destination is, like we want to empower them and teach them how to do that, you also then, if you work backwards, know... Well, what are the what are the the sub goals that that derive from them? What, what are the most important things that we need to teach them? And um, and how much time is that going to take? Uh, how long is that journey going to be? Is that going to be one year? Is that going to be a month? Is it going to be a couple of years? So you need to think about that. And then, of course, you want that journey to continue after you've reached your your first goal. So that could also be, um, in, in a sense, like, like our bigger journey of our, of our platform, uh, the journey of Tridio, is to continue to be self-sustaining. That's always been a primary goal when it comes to governance uh, of, the, of the, the, whole, the whole project. I really dislike, and I think this is from the time that I was studying in Rome where they taught us this, I dislike projects that always depend on uh, on funding rounds, you know, where you have to go and instead of helping people and journeying with them, you have to go and beg for money and do all sorts of fun drives and stuff. Now, of course, I, I understand that for a lot of um, projects, that is uh, that's part of the of the job. Uh, and it can also help I mean, in terms of raising awareness of what you're doing and helping people to, to become, let's say, monthly donors or something like that. But I always thought it was a flaw of, of, of especially Catholic or Christian projects if they never are, become self-sustaining. So that they're constantly strapped for money and, and, and have to beg for, you know, for money of investors. I, I believe that the new economy that we see um, in the realm of social media points in a different direction, and that is if your community bonds are strong enough, then people will support you because they, they want this to continue. And so the effort should be on, on that journey. Oh, look at that. That's a tiny little frog. Is it a fr- it's not a frog. It's a... I'm going to coach him to the other side of the road here because this is a very busy... Come on, little one. It's really... It's an inch long. But there are lots of bikes here that can run over this little guy. And these are protected, actually. There is, like, a frog-like creature. I'm going to coach him. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. It's because the road is wet. And I can barely see him, let alone a bike. Come on, you... Yeah, I'm just coaching along, almost on the other side. Come on, a little bit more. Because, you know, one, one little bike, the other, come on. 
and he's going to be flat. Oh, I think he's tired. These are protected animals, so I don't want this guy to be run over. We have special um, tunnels even for these creatures, but not here on this road. Almost. Come on, just a little bit more. Come on, you can do it. You're almost at the grass, and I think once he's in the grass, he's fine. No, you go this way. You see, he wants to return. Oh, dude. Come on now. Almost there. He's like brown, not like a frog. These don't live in the water. Come on. Yes, almost there. Just a little bit more. You go there. Yeah, good girl or boy or whatever you are. Come on. One more. Good. Just going to tap the ground. He's in the grass. I think he's fine. He's safe. All right. Speaking of journeys, <laughs> you have to coach these little creatures and protect them also. <laughs> and then, of course, I almost got run over by bikes, but I'm a little bit more visible in my blue raincoat than this uh, little critter. <laughs> so, uh, so what I want to create around the programs, and especially now that the media landscape is changing so much in, in uh, the Western world, where you, know, you, you can't just expect religious programming to be financed by the government in a time of a, uh, a secularizing society. And yet you still want to reach out, you want to help the, your fellow Christians, but also other people that can benefit from this lifestyle and inspiration and tradition. But then you need to connect directly with the people that you want to reach and uh, create a forge a bond that will in incentivize them to uh, to support you. And so that's how I'm, I'm thinking more and more in the first part of the journey is first contact. That has always been, I think, one of the things that I do well. I know how to reach new audiences because I record stupid Star Wars videos <laughs> or I play with Lego and, and reach a small but very loyal group of people that are in interested and then you start to build, build on that. And that takes time. But then, and I know I've, I've really learned this from the YouTube uh, experiments, you also want that journey to be self-sustaining. So in the beginning, when I was first building these bigger Star, Star Wars and Harry Potter Lego projects, um, people were asking me constantly, well, can you build this or can you build that? But and Lego is super expensive. So <laughs> I, I know that one of the next steps is going to be I need to help them help me. So I need to set up an easy way for them to become a patron or to do a small, a small PayPal donation. And lots of YouTubers have already uh, implemented this. And the only thing I need to do is find some time to put that in place. And then ultimately you want to have people... Uh, the, the, the destination for the Lego project is to bring them to the other program programs that I make and to bring them into a, a larger community than just the Lego community. So that's just one example. Another example is uh, the, the educational projects. Uh, I did a lot of these 
shorter YouTube videos explaining Christmas or Pentecost or, or Easter, and they've really hit the mark when it comes to um, a, an interest. There's a huge interest for those videos. Small, simple explanations of the faith that are accessible not just for the faithful, but also for people that just want to know what Christians believe and why and where it comes from. And I've been amazed by the success of those videos, and it indicates that there is well, there's just a, a general lack of education. But you can, you, and I will always do that in the in the public domain. I mean, I want as many people as possible to see these videos. But then I'm also working on uh, kind of rethinking this, creating some some more substantial series that we can then sell to schools, to parishes that may not need that first encounter anymore because they're already part of a Christian community. But they do want to build upon that. and uh, So that commercial journey is also part of the overall mission, which is not commercial in my case. We're a non-profit. But you still can implement those those, uh, let's say, customer journeys sounds a little bit uh, very sounds very business-like, but but it, it it is one of the eye-opening thoughts that we learned was it, when people enjoy and appreciate your mission and see the value of that, they want to help you by buying stuff <laughs> because they know that it's not a commercial organization, but they know that with their purchase, they can help you expand your mission. So, uh, and, 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 well, one of, one of the other ideas is uh, picking up that, you know, documentary, that monthly documentary idea uh, for, for my patrons, the people that support me on a monthly basis. I want to give them uh, the value for their support. I want to give them something that they can't get anywhere else. And that also is an incentive for more people to become patrons. Not because I want to become rich and buy a jacuzzi, because I don't care for jacuzzis, and I feel I'm rich enough, <laughs> and I don't mean financially rich. Um, my life is rich enough, but it is because I know that if I can grow that part of what I do, I can do more, and I can, do, I can aim for higher uh, quality and, 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 and bigger audiences. Anyway, so that, that's... Why am I talking about that? Actually, the, the, <laughs> that was well, and what? So one of the consequences of this growing the the business side of what I do of the mission, or the maybe business side is not even the, the right word. The organizational side, the productional side of of the platform, is that I want people to be able to work in in a nice environment that is conducive to creative energy, and this is something that I've learned during my visit to Skywalker Ranch, ranch uh, so many years ago when I was still a young priest, uh, 25 years old, 24 years old. And uh, that was kind of the, the visit of a lifetime. I happened to know a guy who worked inside Skywalker Ranch, not, not, not in a creative position or anything, but just, uh, um, I think, he gave tours and did some all sorts of smaller things and he was following my blog at the time about Star Wars The Phantom Menace and uh, when I 
visited my my aunt and uncle and my nephews. He invited me to come over uh, because my family lives in San Francisco, and said it's just on the other side of the bridge of the gold uh, the the Golden Gate Bridge, and I'll show you around. So uh, it was a marvelous, beautiful spring morning, and uh, uh, Skywalker Ranch itself is is uh, a beautiful, a huge uh, piece of land in the middle of the of the hills. A picture of the the rolling hills of Naboo, where the Gungans are fighting the battle droids. That kind of landscape, and uh, George Lucas built a number of. Of, of houses in the Victorian style. It's all very, very pretty. Um, and because it's a private, it's private property, everything feels like it's been there for, for a couple of centuries. And uh, during the tour, uh, especially the main houses, it's gorgeous. It's all in this, this um, Jugendstil uh, de- decor. It all looks much older than it actually is. Um, we were told that, that George Lucas wanted to create an environment for his artists and for the filmmakers that would resemble almost a, a vacation residence where they would feel completely free of the, of the busyness of, uh, well, of L.A., for instance. Uh, one of his problems that he had with the movie industry is that it's all so industrialized and, and it's all about money and business and uh, and that's not always the best environment for creative ideas. Currently listening to an audiobook that recounts the story of how the Lord of the Rings movies came about. And you, you're com- confronted with that, you know, the killing side of Hollywood where Peter Jackson and a friend and Philippa, Philippa Boyens, uh, fr- being from New Zealand, were confronted with this horribly <laughs> over... Uh, materialistic world of Hollywood and they had to go through the rigmarole of, of interacting with that world in order to be able to make that you know the, the movies that they wanted to make but the, the difference between the laid-back uh, Kiwi style you know where everything is quite pragmatic and people are very laid-back and and prudent and then that hard business world of Hollywood um, totally really and I understand those movies had never become the movies that they are if they had been made by people from LA instead people living in what looks like Middle Earth and feels like Middle Earth have a sensibility I think to tell stories in that atmosphere and in that pace I think that uh, reflects I think the values that Tolkien uh held dear and so uh, Luke, Luke, Lucas George Lucas wanted to create Skywalker Ranch as a place where his artists could be feel free and creative and there were also a lot of um, non-production activities they would have parties and hang out together it's a little bit what uh, in the early years of Google uh, the Google campus uh, promoted heavily it's like you're, you're here uh, but this is a life, this is not a business. And you need to ha- take time off to be creative. And we want the food to be free and good because it's all stimulating for your creative energy. And I believe in that. Of course, uh, of course I don't have the money of a George Lucas or a, 
or a Google company, but I want the offices and the studios to feel welcoming and nice and uh, a, a very pleasant environment to work and to develop ideas. So this past week, we've started our journey towards the renovation with a day on Thursday uh, where we uh, asked for uh, some volunteers to help us and we started cleaning, painting, demolishing and uh, there are uh, about... There's one hallway and then we've got one bigger room that's going to be a, a, a TV studio. We have the kitchen and then we have a very big room in the back of the rectory that will be both an office for editors and uh, and it will also be a small classroom where we can uh, do either presentations or, or give classes and teach people things. don't know exactly what, but I feel that we need to have a, a slightly bigger space where we can gather, let's say, 15 to 20 people and we can show them things and teach them things. The... The, the scariest part, walk, walking underneath the train tracks here, the scariest uh, element of this renovation is, is definitely the kitchen. I've never been very happy with that kitchen when I lived there. It's a hodgepodge thing. There was a, an existing very small kitchenette with dreadful gray paneling and really simple... Um, no, no oven, no, uh, uh, there was a, like a, a, a small one, what is it, one, one circle, 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 how does this, what is it, these electrical heaters to cook water on, and it was just a disaster, and, uh, I had no money for, for a new kitchen, and, uh, the parish didn't even volunteer it, so, like how am I going to cook here <laughs> and at that time my sister was moving to uh, a new ha- well a house that they had bought and uh, there was a, an existing kitchen in that house that was already very old I think it was uh, at least 10 years old it was pretty dirty uh, not the best quality so my sister ordered a new uh, kitchen and they wanted to uh, basically destroy the the current one and i remember seeing it it's like well it is old and it's not the best quality but it's it's better than what i have there is an an oven that still works and there is a gas uh, uh powered cooking station so yeah i'll just try to find someone who can install that in my kitchen and for the time being well once it was installed of course there was never an incentive to to replace it nor was there money to replace it so for 15 years I've been uh, using that second-hand or third-hand kitchen but uh, now that we're redoing the uh, the the upper floor of the of the rectory and we need to work there it suddenly hit me like well why don't we completely change this kitchen into a studio kitchen one of the most uh, popular programs that we've aired this uh, past half year is a cooking show. Where a little bit in the tradition of uh, remember, if you're an old SQPN listener, you may remember uh, these videos that Greg Willits made 
of, uh, of this priest that um, cooked recipes and then uh, talked about faith. And that was all done with no budget, and, uh, but still looked very good. And I, I kind of wanted to do something similar, but then it would be an interview program uh, while cooking. So when you're preparing a dish, you have a conversation about what that person does or thinks or believes, etc. And we always went, for the first season, we went to see a number of priests and deacons because it was called the Catholic Kitchen. So um, th- th- that was uh, a-, a choice of uh, our presenter. She wanted to interview priests in their kitchens. Now, that was a lot of fun, and a lot of people enjoyed those conversations, and, and it worked also program-wise, because there's always something you see. There is a, it's a story. A, cooking is, is storytelling. You have a beginning, you make preparations, you start cooking, things go wrong, things go right, and you have the conclusion of the story, which is the tasting. The downside of that whole uh, concept is you have to ex- uh, you have to uh, o- o- await what what uh, what the situation is. You never know what the kitchen looks like, where you're going to film. Um, not even the position of the of the tables and the and the cooking station. And so it, it turned out to be sometimes super challenging to film it. The conversations were great, and uh, the concept worked wonders, and we had a lot of, uh, of people uh, that reacted to it and shared those videos. But for the production, it was challenging, to say the least, and also um, relatively expensive, because we had to travel the country, and uh, when you go and film one episode, which is about 15 to 20 minutes long, you're still sending both a presenter and a cameraman there, a cameraman director. Uh, So that costs you a day for two people. And if I kind of calculate that according to the rates, that is almost a thousand euros that you've already spent without without a result, because then that video needs to be edited and promoted, etc. So that's a relatively expensive production, but successful, so I didn't mind investing in that. But then I, I saw this old kitchen, and I was like, we're going to redo the entire building. Why don't we build, rebuild this kitchen, invest a little bit of money in Well, a little bit. It's probably going to be expensive. But it's something that we can recoup very quickly if we do, uh, let's say, two more seasons of this series... Um, and we can film it at home, and we can film several of those episodes in one day, then we save ourselves thousands of euros in a very short time, which can then compensate for the investment that we make. So that's kind of how I'm thinking right now, much more (laughs) uh, in the sense of where we're investing. uh, We always invest from money that we've made in the past. That's also, I'm very adamant about that. We never spend money that we don't have. So we've been saving up for this. We're going to build that kitchen. And then we're going to make our money back over, over the years because we can use it in a much more efficient way. Um, so the, the challenging part of it is what is that kitchen going to look like? 
And the, what I always do is I'm going to watch other cooking videos that I like. And I look at the decor and I look at the position of the table and how did they film that and how are the lights. The, the room where we uh, are going to install this new kitchen is relatively small. I think it's uh, around, would it be three, three by three meters? So it's a, it's a square kitchen. And of course, the left half of the kitchen was, was covered with the, the old white cupboards from that third-hand kitchen. So the first thing I wanted to do is let's get it all, let's take it all out. Um, I want this kitchen to look very different from the current kitchen because this is television or, well, it's not television, but this is video and you need to tell a story and if we call it the Catholic kitchen, what is the first association that a lot of people will have? It's monastery kitchens. You want to see something that reminds you of a, of a, a Catholic environment. And, uh, you know, old medieval monastery kitchens um, have a lot of atmosphere. And you can do, you can play with colors and light and old cooking pans and uh, herbs and whatnot. So you get more in something that looks more like something you could see in Game of Thrones or um, I don't think there's much cooking in Game of Thrones or in uh, The Lord of the Rings. Um, so think Brie or think The Shire. Um, so it's got to look old, but the rectory itself is from the 50s. So it's very square, modern, cheap, concrete building. Um, which is great for lamps and that sort of stuff and electricity, but it's, it has no atmosphere whatsoever. So we brought in... Um, first, I made some, of, some designs myself and thinking, well, I want this to look to be as simple as possible. I want to create as much room as possible. So we need to relegate all the cupboards to one side of the kitchen and uh, kind of cover it up, literally, with changing the gray... Uh, cupboards cupboard covers with uh, something a little bit more antique and then I want a kitchen island in the middle of the room that stretches from the side of the room from the wall to the to the middle so we have, can have two people standing be behind it um, with enough space to cook and uh, and then in the background of that next to the door I just want a few shelves and they have to be very small um, and because that's only going to be decoration. And, uh, and then I invited... Um, no, actually, I went to see a couple of these kitchen businesses and uh, taught, gathered some information. And one of those <laughs> kitchen stores was even immediately volunteering to sponsor the entire thing. I was like, well, well we're always looking for exposure, so uh, you need to come back and talk to our region manager and perhaps we can strike a deal where... It won't cost you that much. I'm like, hmm, interesting, why not? <laughs> um, and then on Thursday, we started painting and, uh, uh, and demolishing that old kitchen, which was a lot of work. We spent most of Friday also uh, taking it apart. Because it was, despite the fact that it was an old kitchen, it was still very solidly installed. So we, uh, we got rid of that. And then on Thursday evening right before we had the end of the season barbecue with our team uh, we had a carpenter 
who I knew from previous things that he had done in the rectory, a very nice guy, um, very small business. I mean, he's just doing things by himself, but a, a real a, a real craftsman. I mean, it's all quality what he does. Plus, he's, you know, he has an eye for things. And so we, we told him what we were going to do. And uh, one of the things that... Uh, that I find annoying about that kitchen is that it has this this rectangular window, one window that can open, and then there's a big, almost square window, and it it uh, uh, it, it looks out on the um, on the backyard of the of the rectory and of the church, which is one of the most ugly backyards that you can imagine. It's just a piece of grass, and then there is. A, a, a very boring building on the right of that, and then part of the of the place is covered in uh, concrete tiles and is used as a uh, parking lot for bikes. And it's just a mess, and it doesn't look good at all. And the, the light is coming from the northwest, so it's also not the nicest light. It's not this nice, you know, yellow-colored morning light. This is usually pretty blue light so nothing really that matches the atmosphere that I wanted to give to the kitchen and so I I, I told this carpenter like well can we make a window that looks like a church window and cover it with uh, a non-transparent I don't know matte glass or um, non-transparent glass so that the light can come in but for the camera, if you move the camera around, it will look like a, a window that you could see in a monastery. And he's like, yeah, well, I think we can do this and we can do that. And uh, he's going to work on some on a design to transform that boring, you know, 50s window into something that is actually um, reminiscent of a medieval monastery. I love doing these things. It's, it's taking what you have and it's not the best building I think for for this kind of work and then rethink it and uh, try to imagine what can we do with what we have instead of wishing for you know this perfect place where we, that we will never have and we'll, we'll never be able to afford and so that's that's kind of how we're uh, proceeding the floors are now uh, uh, measured, so we have the exact measurements of the of the various rooms and spaces. So we're going to think about new floors. I also uh, had the floors in my own rectory um, uh, measured, so because that's all still the old carpet of uh, at least the previous two priests, if not longer. It's absolutely not my taste, and it is kind of smelly. <laughs> it's been there for I don't know 20 years at least and it just there is a smell about that carpet that I can't get rid of and it it's kind of light brown or beige almost so it's ugh, ugly <laughs> and I want I want it to have something that looks a bit more like uh, wooden floors and um, but that of course is a much bigger project because it's uh, such a big house where I live and I don't know if I can afford it. But the first thing you need to do is measure and then you can calculate the costs. And then we'll see. I'm already super happy with uh, the low cost 
decoration of the rectory right now with the, the Harry Potter room. And I'm now working on a Hobbit room, which is the most challenging room to make. But I want to create something that looks a bit like uh, a Hobbit hole. <laughs> but I want to do it low cost. And the floors are unfortunately the usually the most expensive um, part of the of decorating. The rest is just cupboards and and uh, uh, stuff that I buy in uh, you know in in, in the charity stores and stuff. <laughs> so uh, the, the my entire Harry Potter room, which is on the on the level uh, ground level. Um, is made of uh, little bottles and stuff that I bought at the at the um, recycling store. <laughs> but it looks good. It, it definitely has a Harry Potter feel. And so I want to do that with the Hobbit room as well. And I want to create a little writing corner where I can sit and pretend that I'm writing books. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'll ever have the energy again to write a, another book. But at least I want to have a corner that is free of uh, electronics and computers and uh and is more conducive to to uh creative work all right i'm going to cross the road here and uh walk to the local dhl delivery shop because i ordered two touch pads for the computers at the office i'm a little spoiled i'm so used to the touch pad on my imac and i love doing that it's much easier on the wrists than a than a mouse is and so the other day i saw an offer where i could buy two uh, touch pads pretty high quality touch pads but they're discontinued for only 15 euros for two touch pads um so i immediately bought two because i work on two computers two uh windows computers so that i can have uh the same kind of uh, not workflow, but the, 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 the same disposition that I have uh, around the Mac. I've been walking for 50 minutes and it's still not really raining, so that's a good thing. And then I'm going to buy myself some uh, walking socks. Hello! Uh, it is now 11 minutes over three. This lady wants to know what time it is. People don't have watches anymore. She was carrying two, two boxes. Uh, so she couldn't look at the time on, on her cell phone like most people do. <laughs> I'm going to get my walking socks. Next week, uh, still officially, I'm at work. It's not vacation what I do uh, because I'm still filming uh, that one TV episode. And then two weeks relaxation in Ireland and of course I'm going to make some videos there and I'm not sure if I'm going to upload them but I will certainly try out the video capabilities of my new phone which are already pretty impressive if you haven't seen the uh, little Stranger Things video that I posted the other day just go to youtube.com slash fatherodrick and check out that that was very funny <laughs> it was kind of a promotional event for Stranger Things the series on Netflix and uh, I was chosen to be the telekinetic um, guinea pig. <laughs> and I had someone else film it with my phone. It was a lot of fun to put that together. But I'll do... Uh, it's, it's amazing that now all of a sudden people are rediscovering my Scottish episodes, which I filmed five years or six years ago in Scotland. 
and it's so funny how the algorithm sometimes give you gives you an entirely new um, viewership or a new community that starts commenting on those very old videos. So travel stuff is kind of timeless. That's what I learned from it. So I'll certainly... At last, the first time that I went to Ireland, which is 15 years ago, I never filmed anything because I didn't have a camera back then. So I'm going to compensate for that this time. And hopefully we'll, uh, we'll have a very relaxing vacation. I have to say, I've, I've, I'm more relaxed than ever before because almost all the work for the second half of the year has been done. We've started the renovation of the studios. Everything is in motion and, uh, and it's going to, to uh, work out well, I think. And that, that, compare that to previous years where I'm constantly stressing to get things done and I have this impossible to-do list. All that is the past. Uh, I'm only doing what I know I can do what I have a budget for and time for and uh, also very important things that I enjoy doing instead of trying to do everything myself delegating and I'm focusing on what no one else can do in my place and that is uh, that's, a, that's a good direction for me and it works and makes me feel good happy and uh, that's what I'm going to continue thank you so much for listening I'm going to pick up my uh, touch pads and then pick up some socks I don't think uh, you need to accompany me on that. <laughs> but I hope to, uh, to see you back on YouTube. Not sure that I'll be doing much podcasting in the next three weeks, but uh, YouTube is YouTube, Facebook. That's probably where you still see a lot of what I'm doing in the next couple of weeks. So see you there. And of course, thanks to my patrons over at patreon.com slash fatheroderick if you want to join them. Yes, please. All right. See you later. Take care. <laughs>